Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Praise the Lord. Hopefully you got some donuts this morning on your way in. And uh, we are glad to be gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ uh, to worship Him. And I oftentimes say when I first step up here, uh, good morning, Southbridge. And uh, it is great to say that. I know some of you have been sharing with your coworkers and different people in the community that Southbridge is your church, and this is actually your first time attending Southbridge. And so uh, we are glad that you are here. If you look through the Bible, there are these moments throughout the Old Testament specifically where God would do such a significant thing that the people of God would set up uh, memorial stones. And so you see it like when Noah gets off the ark or when Joshua crosses the Jordan River. And sometimes it's because of God's deliverance. Sometimes it's his provision, uh, guidance, different things that God does. And as I think about the life of our church, we're together at a monumental moment today. And it's one of those moments, one of those like set up the stone moments and see what God has done. And as I was thinking about what to share with you as we were starting off this Sunday together, I was thinking about there's all these moments. Some of them I've been able to share publicly. Some of them have been more like prayer meetings and behind the scenes type things. And thinking about this, but it's such a God moment to come to this place where these two churches become one. And I remember where uh, when Pastor Lee and I see there, Pastor Lee, when we were sitting at lunch talking about this, and that first came up in a conversation, and then on December 4th, we sent a letter over to the elders at Covenant, Southbridge elders did, and at first some of our elders were like, I don't know, is it okay to do that kind of thing? And then we just started meeting together, talking about things. And, and I remember when one of our elders first came up to me, it was my father-in-law, I think was the first one that came up to me, he's no longer with us, but he came up to me and said, why don't, why don't that church just join us? And then a couple of our other elders, I think Matt Nyhoff came up to me, maybe JD, a couple other guys came up to me, Vern Kivett, I know, said it. And, and I remember my response to all of them was the same. No, no, no. We don't want, that's messy. We don't want to do that. Just clean. Let's just buy their property. That'll be so much easier. And uh, I'm not always the fastest on the uptake of what God's doing, but I've got some godly men in our, in our church that are leading. And so by the time we sat in a meeting uh, with the covenant elders in March, I was praying for that, and so were um, the majority of our elders, to my knowledge, just praying that, that God would do something that was way bigger than us, and I remember when Jacques Murray was the chairman of the elders at, at Covenant Church at the time, back when there was a, a Covenant Church, and uh, we were sitting there together, and uh, he said, when you guys first sent the letter, we knew that our building wasn't for sale, we knew it wasn't our building, we didn't want to sell to you, and uh, we still don't want to sell the building to you, and it's kind of like, oh man, and he said, but what would you think about us joining you, and uh, we give you this campus, and it was one of those moments where I, and your jaws may have literally hit the table at that moment, different people praying that, but it was one of those God moments where you're like, I prayed that and you're actually doing it, God. And being in that moment, and then a couple weeks ago, we had both congregations vote to see if they affirmed the way that the elders were leading the churches, and in both churches, well over 90% of the people affirmed that, and so two churches have become one today, and that's exciting. Yeah, and give the Lord a hand. And uh, what some of you don't know is that at the beginning of this week, too, on Monday, we gathered together with the different leaders in the church, and we had some legal paperwork to do, and part of that was uh, the closing on the Strickland Road property, and so Covenant Church deeded that over to Southbridge Fellowship, and we own that property now, but one of the other amazing things that happened in that moment, and because of many of your generosity, but God's amazing provision, is that immediately we paid off that mortgage, so we're a, a day, I give the Lord a hand for that.
And after the second service today, after our 10.30 service at about noon, we're going to gather together at the football field. We're going to have a picnic together. And uh, once we get rolling with that and you've had enough barbecue in you and we've been able to throw some cornhole or whatever we're going to do with all that stuff, um, we're going to burn the mortgage together today. And so it's going to be a special time. Give the Lord a hand. And uh, we are excited about all those things. But I was thinking, just as your pastor, what's it like for people to come to church today? And there's an excitement about it. But if you're a regular attender of Southbridge, you're going, oh, there's new people. Who are these new people? What's it going to be like? Are they going to mess up my small group? Like, what's going to happen with all those things? And if you're coming for the first time, maybe you've been telling people in the community, this is your church, but now you're actually coming here, and you don't know who these people are, and are they really weird? Let me tell you, yes, we are, just so you know. <laughs> but what's it going to be like? And I was starting to think, what is that like? And, and we're, here we are, we're meeting at a middle school. I remember the first middle school dance I ever went to. Do you remember that? And I remember, for me, it was seventh grade. I know school here starts at sixth grade. And, and middle school is a weird time because everything's new. Like, all of a sudden, all the girls don't have cooties. Some of them do. Not all of them do. And, and in your mind, like, your teachers are new and your friends are new and you go to a new building. And, and then what happens is, as you get started in that first year, they announce they're having the first dance. And then people are excited about it. But then there's all this apprehension. Different people come for different reasons. Some people come because all my friends are going to be there. So you're an extrovert and you want to be with all your friends. Some people are introverts, and your parents, like, kicked you out of the car. Like, you're going to the dance. You're going to go make friends. And, and some people, it's because there's cute boys or there's cute girls. Or there's all these different reasons. I remember when I first walked in to the gym at my middle school. Lights were dark. There's balloons. They're playing music that I like. There were some cute girls there. I didn't know how to talk to them at that moment, so everything was awkward. I didn't have any dance moves, by the way, just so you know. And now all the kids are doing, like, the floss, you know. You know. The little kids, little kids got that. I'm sure I'll get a, an edited clip of that later sent to me. But me dancing in that moment of my life was like spastic. It was not going to be socially beneficial for me to do that. And so I get to this dance, and it's like the girls are on one wall, the guys are on another wall, kind of talking to your friends. Everything's a little bit awkward. And you're wondering, what do we do now? Here we are. Now what? And think about where we're at as a church body. And a lot of you come, and maybe it's not worried about dancing. Don't, you don't have to dance. If you'd like to dance at the picnic, totally fine. But you don't know what to do. Like, what do we do now? How does this go? Where are we exactly? And what is supposed to happen? And so today we're going to do a special message. We'll be in John chapter 17. If you have a copy of the Bible, I invite you to turn there. In John chapter 17, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. Chapter 17, going towards the back of that book. And the title of today's message is this. We are one. We are one. And my hope and my goal for this message is that we'll be able to define where we're at as a church and then look at where are we headed? What does this mean? Where do we go from here? And as I've gotten to know different folks from Covenant Church, one of the things that's overwhelmed me is that God's been weaving our stories together for far more than the past six months. Far more than the past several years, in fact, more than 11 and a half years ago, even when Southbridge started. And one of the things that blew me away is when I was reading this passage of Scripture is that Jesus has been praying about this far before any of us ever thought about it. And so as we go to John chapter 17, here's what I need you to do this morning. I need you to use your imagination with me. And imagine you're one of Jesus' 11 closest followers. Not Judas, nobody would pick him naturally anyways. But imagine you're one of Jesus' closest followers. You've left everything to follow him, okay? So you left your business. Whatever you're doing as a job, as of Friday, you're not doing that anymore. You've been following, you left all that to follow Jesus. You left homes, you left family, tax collector, you're not going back to that job. Maybe as a fisherman you could get that business, but you've, for the past three years, you've been walking with Jesus. Your whole life is wrapped up in Jesus, and Jesus just told you, I'm leaving. I don't know how many of you experienced loss. I know many of you know what's going on in my own family. My father-in-law passing away recently. I know last week, some, several of you that were at part of Cele- uh, uh, Covenant Church had a celebration service. 
And when we called the celebration service, it felt like there's some loss there because some of the history, is like, it seems like it's going away. It's not going away. It's just changing. There's a loss. Can you imagine the loss these men feel in this moment? Their whole life is wrapped up in Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm taking off. I'm out of here. Can we go with you? No, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but you can't come with me. You stay here in this world, and that feels like a kick in the gut. There's got to be a tremendous fear and confusion in that moment, in that loss. Now, Jesus says it's going to be better, but they've got to be thinking to themselves, how's this better? I left everything. I can't go back to my job. How's the fishing thing going to pick back up? I'm going to, I can't go back and be a tax collector again. I'm, the Romans are done with me. Political zealots there, like they've thrown, their whole, they've thrown it all in with Jesus. And let me tell you something. That's not the point of this message today, but you might want to jot it down in your Bibles next to John chapter 17. If you don't need it right now because you're not experiencing loss or confusion, you'll need it at some point. Is that what Jesus is doing is always bigger than your circumstances. Amen. What Jesus is doing is always bigger than your circumstances. In any given event, he's doing millions, if not billions of things with the ripple effect of that. And what Jesus is doing here is way bigger than just these men's 11 lives. But imagine you're these men, and Jesus knows they're sorrowful. And in John chapter 16, he says this, verses 6 and 7, Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. You're going to be able to do things you weren't able to do before. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Helper, now forget everything you've ever heard about ask Jesus into your heart, anything you've learned, lessons you learned about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit coming. If you're one of the disciples in this moment, you might be thinking, is that a ghost? What are you talking about? Is it like sentimental language? Like you're always going to be with you. You're always going to be in my heart. You're always going to be, what are you talking about Jesus? There's confusion. There's fear. There's loss. Jesus ends chapter 16 with this verse. I've said these things to you that you may have peace. <laughs> oh, really? In the world, you will have tri tribulation. Some of you are trying to say trouble. It's a promise from Jesus. It's not if you prayed hard enough, you wouldn't have it. You're going to have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And then what we get in chapter 17 is a prayer by Jesus. Some people call it the, the real Lord's Prayer. So moments before, he's going to be arrested, crucified, die, leave this place. He prays this prayer. The first five verses, we don't have time to go through the whole chapter. The first five verses are all about him praying for himself, the ministry that he's had here, him glorifying the Father. Verses 6 through 19 are him praying for those 11 disciples that are there. But verses 20 through 26 are him praying for you. Did you know we have the words of Jesus praying for you in the Bible? Let's look at them. We'll start reading uh, chapter 17. I'll start reading verse 15. He's making a prayer request for those 11 guys that are there with him. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify, that's a, a biblical word, word that really means set apart, set them apart. In truth, in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me, in the same manner that you sent me, the ultimate missionary, Jesus Christ, into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate or set myself apart, that they may also be set apart, sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only. Okay, so he's not just praying for the eleven, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's the people in the book of Acts. That's the people in the next generation after that. That's in the generation previous to us. That's you. That's me. That's Lord. If Jesus doesn't come back today, that's the next generation. He's praying for you here, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, the gospel. That, here's this prayer request for you, 2,000 years ago thinking about you. 
they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so Jesus, praying for us 2,000 years ago, could have prayed anything. Could have prayed for a pain-free existence for you. Could have prayed for your comfort. Could have prayed for lots of things that you maybe wish you'd pray for, pray for your health. He prays for your oneness. He prays for oneness, but it's an intense oneness. Did you see how he says it? There's an interesting phrase there. You can underline it if you're studying your Bible and you're, you're comfortable with underlining your Bible. That they may be one just as, even as, in the same manner as, I father them in you and you are in me. Let them be in us. Okay, this is a different level of oneness than most of us can fathom. Most of us, when we think about unity, we think, let's just all get along. Can't we all just get along? Like I think about it as a parent, my kids in the back of the car sometimes. I'm like, just don't touch each other. Don't look at each other. Like, just be. I was driving them to school the other day, and they were getting after one of the sisters. I got four girls. They were getting after one of the sisters about how she was breathing. <laughs> I am not kidding. And I, I was getting a phone call when I realized what the argument was. And I said, I was like, are you really arguing about breathing? Stop that. Hello? How's it going? <laughs> you know, your parents probably all did that to you, right? And I'm like, just, I didn't want to say stop breathing in the back. I was like, just like exist, to, like coexist, I would be happy. Just survive amongst one another and don't fight. And a lot of times what we mean when we talk about unity, especially when we talk about like church unity, we just mean like get to the lowest common denominator. And you'll hear trite statements, like bumper sticker type statements that aren't, no one can really live in them, but you see them on like the news when people are arguing. Can't we just love? Can't we just all get along? Can't we just get past our differences and focus on the things we agree upon? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. And Jesus is not talking about uniformity here. There is, and I'm not going to explain the whole Trinity because I can't, um, in, in this message today. But here's the Trinity. The Trinity is three persons that are one in essence, but they're three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So there is diversity amongst their unity. And so for our unity, does not mean we all have the same gifts, we all have the same likes, we all have the same backgrounds, we all have the same story. doesn't mean that everybody, if they became mature in Christ, would root for NC State. That is not, despite of what some people think. Or that we all be capitalists or all be socialists in spite of what some people think. And we can keep drilling down into some things that we would disagree upon and still be unified because we see the world through different eyes because none of us completely bear the image of God. And so we're a body that comes together with many parts that forms one body. And the oneness that he's talking about here is far beyond uniformity. It's that they would be one as we are one. And what you see here is he's talking about relationship. And so our first point today is simply this. We are one through relationship. We are one through relationship. But here's the, here's the zinger of that. It's not relationship with one another. It's relationship with Jesus Christ. We are one through relationship. In fact, if you see oneness throughout the Bible, you see it in relationship. In the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, when God's talking, speaking about himself, he says, let us, an allusion to the Trinity, living in community with one another before time began, as he's creating the world, let us make man in our image. The three were one. Then in Genesis chapter 2, he institutes this thing called marriage. God instituted it. He made it up. We don't really get to tweak it and mess with it. It's his thing. In Genesis chapter 2, man's alone. It's not good for man to be alone. He says in Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become Interesting, the first place you see division is in a marriage too. Is that a surprise to anyone here who's married? Don't say anything because your spouse is listening. listening. <laughs> this woman that you gave me, God, it's her fault. Don't throw your spouse under the bus publicly, especially in front of God. 
but that was supposed to be oneness. And then you get to the New Testament, and the church is called his bride, and the church is called a body, and the church is called a family. And we see brother. It's not just like an endearing language. You see this brothers and sisters in Christ language is because we're a family with one another. And so all who believe in him, he's given the right to be called children of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. In Ephesians chapter 1, you've been adopted into his family. And so we're one because of our relationship with God. That's where oneness comes in this relational language. And so in Ephesians, it says this. If you want to hear about oneness, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, there's one. We are one. In fact, just before those verses, it said that we maintain unity. We don't create unity. It actually happened by God when he brought you into a relationship with him. And so this phrase that it said in John chapter 17, verse 21 that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they, and this is the phrase, may be in us. And so what you see here, it's implied by Jesus, is that our oneness is directly related to our relationship with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we relate with God, so then we will relate with one another. And so when I talk about oneness through relationship, I'm talking about a relationship with Jesus is where it happens. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to preach this message on unity today, and then, you know, 100 messages from now, somebody's going to come up and be like, well, yeah, 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 I preached that message on unity that first time, Jim talked about it again since. That's right, because what we're going to talk about a bunch is Jesus, because that's what's going to draw us together. So I need some help illustrating this point this morning. I need three volunteers to come up here. You're not going to have to say anything. Just come up here. You don't need me to call you out unless we really got to get down to that, but just three people, pop on up. All right, I got one, two. Come on up here on the stage. We need one more person. Got the lady stepping up. Thank you, John. Come on up here. Got three. We got three. Thank you. I appreciate you being willing. Come on up. Come on up here. And um, Ashley, I know it's your your first time here today. And so I'm going to give you the easiest role. You get to be Jesus. All right. (laughs) Ashley is just an actor today. Just an actor in this. And so if Ashley cuts you off in the parking lot, don't go home. I got cut off by Jesus at Southbridge. Don't do that today. So come on up here. You're just going to stand right here. So you're just going to stand here the whole time. Right. You're like the rock in this situation. Right. You, stay, you stay firm right there. I'll move this out of the way a little bit here. And then, Lauren, why don't you come on over here. You can stand right over here at that piece of tape there. And, John, if you stand right here, that'd be great. And right here, right here, right here. And you, can fa- you don't even have to look at all these people. You can look at, keep your eyes on Jesus right over here, right over here, right over here. Two distinct people, different stories, different backgrounds. And we got Jesus here in the middle. Let's just say... That your story, John, you're over 25. Are you over 25? I think so. Okay, all right. We'll go with that then. They say that you trusted Christ when you're 25 years old. Okay. All right? So you're at the starting line right there. And then you get connected with some believers, and they talk to you about getting baptized. So why don't you take a step forward? So this line is kind of your spiritual trajectory here. Okay. All right? So you trust Jesus. You get baptized. Take a step forward. Then some people, you start realizing you go to a small group. Uh, people are studying their Bible on their own. They're not just doing what the message says. And so you decide, I need to start reading my Bible on my own. As you read your Bible, you start getting closer to Jesus. So take another step. And then uh, let's say that you decide this prayer thing. I'm not real comfortable with it publicly yet, but it seems like these people do it privately as well. And so you start praying. You start growing closer with Jesus. Take another step. And let's just say then that something happens in your life. I don't know this for sure, but let's say that uh, you and your wife miscarry a baby. You get angry at God. And you decide, you're, you kind of fade from group, but you're not sure you like his plan and you want to pray quite as much. So why don't we take a couple steps back? And you get a little bit off track. You're maybe not even on the line anymore. Yeah, there you go. Come towards, the, come towards there. 
you start getting to know the pastor, and you start getting to talk to each other. Maybe you come, all right, and then you decide you don't like that. That happens. That happens. And uh, maybe, maybe you meet a couple folks, though, and they invite you to, you come to, you're kind of going to church at Christmas time and Easter time. They invite you to something else. Certainly wouldn't go to church on Mother's Day or Father's Day because you're anger towards the Lord and some of those things. Um, but then you start getting some people that really love on you and bring you back into the fold, and you start attending church more regularly, and and you see God answering prayers. You see God, you see that he's real, and he's not always doing the things you want him to do, but he's doing something, so you take some more steps, and you get closer. And eventually, as you continue to grow, and some years go on, you get really close. And so we'll just have you stand right next to you, Ashley here, for a sake of illustration. Then we'll come over here. Lauren, let's say your story is different. Let's say that you trusted Jesus when you're eight years old. You trust Jesus when you're eight years old? I'm 12. Well, come on, it's my illustration. I mean eight. Eight, yeah, yeah, sounds good, all right. So you trust Jesus when you're eight years old, or 12 years old, something like that, in that range. And, uh, but you're younger, you're a kid, and uh, you go to VBS, and you go to camp, and you have some experience with Jesus, so you get a little bit closer to him, but you find out, you realize in your faith, you're kind of more of a, a cerebral person, maybe John's a little bit more of an emotional person, you're more like kind of in your head thinking about your faith, and, and you, you trusted Jesus when you were 12, but your family went to church, and you're not sure if it was mom and dad's faith, but then you met some other Christians, and so you're growing closer to Jesus, and you go on a mission trip, and it goes well, take another step, get a little bit closer to Jesus, but then you go to college. Did college happen to anybody's spiritual journey here? So, Lauren, if you could step down onto the subwoofer, that'd be great. Right over here. And you're kind of like maybe in the lobby. Uh, and you go to, yeah, don't leave. We need you here still for the illustration. Well, maybe you go to UNC, you meet Bart Ehrman, and Bart tells you that uh, he's an atheist, outspoken atheist, and one of the things he'll tell you in the classrooms is a bit of Wolfpacker. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't know who the religion professors are there, so I can't do that one. But... Uh, there's a lot of manuscripts of the Bible. And when your pastor stands up in front of your church, he says, well, in the Greek manuscript, we don't even have the original Greek manuscript. And so how does he even know? And so you start to kind of get in your head about your faith and some of these things. And maybe you're like out in the lobby. You'll just have you stand right here. But you're getting farther and farther away from God. And then you start to think about, well, if God says that he's love, then what's the deal with all this, like, there's tsunamis? Can't he feel, why are kids dying? What about rape, human trafficking? So the church wants to get involved in social issues. Why are there social issues? If God's sovereign, he's in control, and he says he's loving, why does all this bad stuff happen? It didn't even happen to you, but just bad stuff happens. But then you, you get connected with some other students at the school, and you realize not all of them are given trite bumper sticker statements. So you're at least interested in having spiritual dialogue with them. You learn about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so you start going, oh, well, does Bart know about this? Or Professor Hood, so-and-so at Wolfpack, whatever, whatever. And you start to learn, you just realize it's not just like this blind faith. Like there's some evidence here, and and you start to think about some of these things and you start deciding you're going to get connected with a church. And so you start growing. So let's take some steps back. We start coming back. And then you have some problems in your marriage. And something happens too. Maybe somebody gets cancer or somebody wants to leave or things like that. But instead of you getting angry like you would have gotten about God doesn't do all the things you want him to do and there's pain, there's difficulty, it actually draws you closer to Jesus. Because you need his comfort. And you get more intimate. And you end up in this spot. And what you see here, yeah, that's great. I didn't tell him to do that. That's the, that's the, <clears throat> you just stay here for a couple minutes. Stay right here. And what you see is they grow closer to Jesus, they get closer with one another. But you know when, do you know when they became one? It was right here. It was at the starting line. You see, what it says in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, I read you that one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one Father, one baptism. It says to maintain unity. Chapter 4, read it, verses 2 and 3. In a spirit of love that you'd maintain. It doesn't say create. You don't generate unity. 
When you came in to the relationship with Jesus Christ, you became one. That's why Christianity is unique. It's not an ethnic religion. You're not born into it. You're not a Sikh. You're not born into it. It's not Muslim. You're not just Muslim. You're not, you're not just Christian because you were born in America, FYI. It's because you were born again into Jesus Christ. When your knee bowed and you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ because he paid for your sins on the cross and you realized you couldn't save yourself, you became part of a family. And the family's one. We're one with Christians in China and Ethiopia, here in America, all over the place. What's happened in these two churches is a picture of that for our community. But the way you get closer is you draw closer to Jesus. So thank you three for helping me illustrate that. I want to give them a hand. Thank you. You can head on back. Head on back out there. Careful. Watch your step. Like how A.W. Tozer said, I'm going to put this quote up on the screen here. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be, where they become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. And so what's the key? The key is that we grow closer to Jesus Christ. But as we do it together as a family, not forsaking the assembly of believers, corporately doing this. See, in, in our day and age, we're so individualistic. We think that means I need to go away in my prayer time and my Bible study, and I'll get close to Jesus. And if we don't get along, it's because you're not close to Jesus. No, we're supposed to grow together as a body. And so as a small group, as a corporate assembly under the teaching of the word, when we have encounters with Jesus Christ, continually as we pray together through the ups and downs of church life, we, we grow together as we grow closer to Jesus Christ. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, not you will overcome. I have overcome the world. So draw closer to me. That's the first point is it's through relationship. The second point is it's through victory. We are one through victory. Do you see that first verse that I read in John chapter 17? In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his 11 disciples, but it applies to us too. So he's not specifically praying for you here, but he's praying for these guys who are, are, are fearful, are confused. You know, they know he's, they've seen Jesus has been the one that's protected them and guided them and taught them and done everything for them up until this point for the last three years. And he says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you, and he doesn't say keep them in the world, he, they're going to be in the world. You're in the world, not of the world. He says keep them from the evil one. There's a battle that takes place, and the battle is real, and we don't always see the real danger. I'm going to assume that if, you're, if you believe the Bible and you call yourself a Christian, you're here today, that you believe that Satan, you have an evil one, an enemy that really is against you, and you might have all kinds of thoughts about what that means, but the reality is that many of us believe that Satan is real, but we don't live like he's real. I was thinking about it the last time I took my family to the beach. It was, it was like the analogy of what happened with us at the beach. I was out in the ocean. With my, my second oldest daughter, Ava, she's just a blast to be around. She's all in on life and so super emotional person. And we were riding the waves together, and we rode a wave together, and she kind of jumped over my back, and we were coming on the thing. We are laughing, having a good time, walking back out into the waves. And, and the waves are about waist deep on me, about shoulder deep on her. And I'm not suggesting you parent this way. I'm not saying this is an example to follow, okay? Just be clear about that. I'm just going to tell you what did happen in the moment. So what happened is we're walking on. I'm about waist deep. She's about shoulder deep. And I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. She just looks at me. I was like, did you see that fish? 
And she just stares at me and goes, the fins, the fins! And then she just starts squealing. Ah, Dad! She's trying to jump on me, trying to dump on her boogie board. And I'm just laughing at her at that point. She says, why are you laughing? I was like, there's no fish. I'm just kidding around. And so we just go out and ride a couple more waves. And yeah, like I said, it's probably going to be counseling sessions for that later. But it was fun in the moment. We ride a couple more waves. I go up onto the shore. I am not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. You can ask my wife, ask the kids as they come into the second service. Not five minutes later, the lifeguard that was, you know, 100 feet away from where we were, we were had our tent set up and stuff, and comes running out with his little Baywatch device, which what is that all about, by the way? But anyway, he's got his Baywatch thing, and he's, he's blowing a whistle, and he's waving people in, waving everybody off the beach, except for a couple guys. I don't know what they were thinking, but whatever. Pulls them all in there. We ended up finding out why he pulled them off. There was a six-foot shark right by where I was playing with my kids, and my kids were now at in this moment. See, I believe in sharks. <laughs> I believe they're dangerous. I don't want to mess with them. But I've been in the water enough times and got comfortable and didn't really seem like, not, it's irrelevant to my life. I mean, there's sharks out here in the ocean. They're not going to mess with me. So what does the Bible say about Satan? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Let me tell you what that is. That's God coming out, holding up his lifeguard. Hey, the shark's in the water. Be alert. Be sober-minded. Don't, don't get so comfortable. You miss. There's an evil one, and Jesus talks about him in John chapter 10. He says he's got a threefold plan for your life. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. He wants to have you. We see it throughout the Bible. Job, you know the problem for Job? Job never read his own book. He just thought bad stuff was happening in his life. He didn't realize the spiritual dynamics that were taking place. Because if you read Job chapter 1, there's a spot where God opens the curtain. He says, let me show you what's happening behind the scenes. Chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, there's a conversation between God and Satan. And, and Satan says to God, the only reason Job loves you is because of the gifts you give him. He doesn't love you. Let me take the gifts. And then Job's life, and one day he loses 10 kids, multiple businesses, a ton of money. His wife tells him, curse God and die. It's not about Job even. There's a spiritual battle that's taking place all around him. Right before Jesus gets arrested, he tells Peter, he pulls Peter aside. It's not just Job, he pulls Peter aside and he says, Peter, Satan has asked to have you, but I've prayed for you. See, Satan wants to have you too. He, wants to, he hates what's happening with these two churches coming together. You know what he wants? He wants to get some of you off in isolation. He does his best work when you're in isolation. And he wants to take some truth and he wants to twist it. See, what, what does he do with Jesus when Jesus is tempted by Satan? He uses scripture. But he twists it. He wants to twist. Somebody says something to you today at church, and they're trying to be kind to you. They're trying to start a relationship with you, and he gets you alone, and to get you to start thinking, they were judging me. This person was against me. I can't be around this person. He wants to do that kind of stuff to you. He wants to pull you aside. You know, think about an army when they all bind together, and they get their shields together, and they're ready for battle, gladiator style. Who's easiest to pick off? It's the ones that get off into isolation. He wants you to be like at a middle school dance, standing up against the wall. You don't want to get involved. He wants to take you out. His plan is to sh it's not just to kind of guide you off the line here, a little bit away from Jesus. He wants to destroy you, but he knows if he does that automatically for most of you, you're going to pick it up, so he'd rather veer you off slowly. It's not just Job. It's not just Peter. It's you, and it's me. I'm talking to my wife this week just about spiritual battle and things that were going on in my own life, and she reminded me of a passage of Scripture in 2 Kings with the prophet Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha, and what happens is there's this wicked king that wants to destroy him. So he sends an army to destroy him. And Elisha's servant gets up that morning and goes out and sees this army coming for this guy that he works with. 
and he's overwhelmed by it. He comes into to Elisha and he tells him what's going on. And he says, don't worry, those that are with us are greater than those that are with them. And that must have been confusing to that guy. But then Elisha prays and he prays, God, help him to see it. And God miraculously opens that servant's eyes so he can see chariots of fire battling on behalf of Elijah when the evil's coming against him. Can you imagine if God just peeled back the curtain for us for a moment and let us see the battle that's taking place? You know how much Satan hates what's happening in this room, but God is a God of unity, the one Father, one Lord, one Spirit, one baptism, praying for our unity. What do you think Satan wants to happen? You don't think there's things taking place? But it's not going to be so overt. He's going to come after your marriage. He's going to come after your kids. He's going to attack your health. You have some job problems. And he's going to start by diverting your relationship with God. And then it'll impact each other. Before I know long, you're, you're way, you're not at the subwoofer. You're way away from Jesus. That's Satan's plan for your life. But let me tell you something. Did you look at the passage? He doesn't pray here in verse 15 that you would be strong enough to fight. He doesn't pray, God, help them in the battle. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, verse 15, but that you, God, keep them from the evil one. The battle actually belongs to the Lord. And here's the reality. He's stronger than your enemy. The one who fights for us is greater than these that fight against us. And so you look at it and you see, what did Jesus, Jesus taught this to his disciples. Go to Mark chapter 3. He talks about a strong man. He's talking about Satan. He says, no one robs a strong man's house unless he first ties the strong man up, binds the strong man. Then he can take the strong man's possessions. You know what Jesus was doing throughout his ministry? Every time he healed a leper, he was robbing the strong man, the God of this earth, that had those people in bondage. Every time he opens blind eyes, taken from the strong man. Every time he forgives sins, taken from the strong man. He, he binding Satan, showing he is stronger. And so what you end up seeing in Mark chapter 3 is he gives this parable, but then he starts to live it out in his life. Because in Mark chapter 4, the disciples are in a boat and there's a storm. They're terrified. They think they're going to die. Jesus shows up on the scene. You know what Jesus says? Shh. Be quiet, wind. Be quiet, waves. And Jesus shows he's stronger than the storm. And he's stronger than the storms in your life. But it doesn't stop there. Because then you go to chapter 4. Do you know what happens in chapter 4? There's this demon-possessed guy who's got multiple demons in him. And without getting into the details of that story, they would bind this guy up with chains. He'd break the chains. They were, it was just like, be quiet back there. Just go away from us. We're scared of you. But then what happens is that Jesus changes this guy's life, casts the demons out. They find the guy dressed in his right mind. The town shows up and says, now we're scared of Jesus. Because Jesus just showed he's stronger than anything they've ever been able to deal with before. He's stronger than demons. He's stronger than anything that holds you in bondage. He's stronger than the difficulty in your life. But it doesn't stop there. Because what happens next, he has an encounter with this woman who's gone to all the physicians and tried to get all kinds of help. And she's had a bleeding issue for 12 years. And Jesus, without even a word, heals her disease. Who touched me? Power went out for me. He's got power over disease, he's got power over demons, he's got power over difficulty. Oh, but it gets bigger. There's this guy, he's really wealthy and well-known. His name is Jairus. His daughter just died. That's where he was on his way to. And what Jesus shows next is Jesus has got power over death. And so Jesus has got power over death. He's got power over difficulty. He's got power over demons. He's got power over the storms of your life. He's got power over disease that come into your life. Here's the reality. You will have trouble. But Jesus has overcome all of your trouble. And so what do you do? What, how do you fight the battle? Oh, you draw closer to Jesus. It's not that you have to fight. It's not that you have to bind the enemy. Jesus Christ already has the victory. For one, you're a believer. This side of the cross, you're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. Jesus Christ already won the battle at the cross. So we are one as a body to the victory that Jesus Christ has provided. Draw closer to Jesus Christ. But here's the reality. The whole goal of this isn't oneness. 
It's amazing how many times Jesus prays this. He prayed it in verse 11 for those disciples. He prays it for us in verse 20, verse 23. You see, he prays it over and over in verses 20 through 26. But oneness is not the goal. You don't create it, you don't generate it, you maintain it. But the end is not even oneness. Did you see what it was? It's our third point, that we are one, not just through relationships. We are one, not just through victory, but we are one on mission. So who are we? We are one as a family together because of a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are one in the battle against sin and death and Satan because of Jesus Christ. But we are one, and where are we headed? On mission for Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. It's not my words. Don't miss this. I'll read and start reading in verse 20 again. John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, talking about his 11, but also for those who will believe. That's you and me, in me, through their word. That, here's the request, they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, and so the same as you underlined just as, underline so that. Here's why. Here's the reason. Because so that we could all sing kumbaya and be happy together. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what Jesus is saying here is when the, when the world looks and they see our oneness through relationship with Jesus Christ, when they see our oneness through the victory that we have because of the cross, they see that we are united. Not because we've gotten it all down to the, some bumper sticker statement, the lowest common denominator. Not because we're all the same, but because different people with different backgrounds, different stories come together under Jesus Christ. That we would live in that oneness. Yeah, you can give the Lord a hand for that. That when we live that out, that the world would believe that the Father sent the Son, that the Father loves them, and they'd be drawn to Jesus Christ. That's the why, that we live on mission for one another. You think about what is it, think about all the stuff that we do as believers. You think about different churches. You can read a hundred different church websites, the purposes of the church, the core values of the church, the means of the things that we do. We worship together, and we have teaching, and we pray, and there's small groups, and there's all these different things that you see. Why is it that when you become a Christian, you don't just go to heaven? Why is it not like, beam me up? Because, like, worship, amazing to this morning. It was great. It's going to be better in heaven. Fellowship, going to be great. We're going to have a great time at the picnic. It'll be better in heaven. Teaching, I don't want to say anything good about the teaching. That's kind of weird, right? Jesus is going to be our teacher in heaven. He's still going to be learning. What is, it, what is it that we do here that we can't do better in heaven? Fulfill our mission. There aren't going to be lost people there. Just as the Father sent me, so am I sending you. Verse 18, do you remember me reading that one? What, why are we one? So that the world. He, said, he says earlier, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for you. You're not of the world, you're in the world. Why can't we go with you, Jesus? You're going to a better place. You're preparing. Why can't we just come with you now? Because i got a plan for you. So the Father and the Son are one. How does the Father complete his work? Through the Son. How does the Son do his work? Through us. It goes back to John chapter 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we draw closer to Jesus Christ. As we draw closer to Jesus Christ, we share Jesus Christ with those that are in our world. None of you here can reach the world for Christ. All of us here can reach our world for Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons why as a church, we challenge everybody who calls Southbridge their church home to have at least one person one person that you're praying will come to know Jesus Christ in this next year. That you're trying to share the gospel. I challenge you, write them in the cover of your Bible. Every time you open your Bible up, you pray for that person's name. It might be a relative, it might be a neighbor, it might be somebody that lives in another part of the world. 
but you're constantly trying to share the gospel with them. You're praying for them regularly. You're trying to demonstrate because you know their needs. You're trying to demonstrate the love of Christ in their life. And so we say it all the time as a church. Who's your one? Who's the one person you're trying to reach? And then you lead them to Jesus, and guess what? Write down another one. In fact, maybe you're a super Christian. Write down 50. I don't care. But you got to have some because that's our mission. That's why we're here. It's the thing that we can't do in heaven that we can do here is to fulfill the mission. The mission Jesus had to seek and save that which is lost. That's why at the end of every gospel, you get the great commission. Just the Father sent me, I'm sending you. John chapter 20, verse 21, when they're scared and Jesus is actually gone now, my peace I give you. The Father sent me, I'm sending you. The Matthew one, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Why didn't Jesus just do that? He's going to do it through you. As we stay united to him, apart from him we can do nothing. We do it together, and that's why Acts happens. And Luke, the, the gospel, it's going to happen. The gospel of forgiveness will be preached. You get the opportunity to be a part of God's story. And that's, that's why, that's the why of one. And so you think about it here in this passage, says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And you think about what's happening here. God knew exactly what would happen in this room this day 2,000 years ago when he's praying this prayer. What do you think if God's plan for our oneness is that we would reach the world for Jesus Christ, what do you think he wants to do through what's happening with these two churches right now? We know what Satan wants to do. He wants to cause division. He wants to pick people off. He wants to destroy your faith. What do you think God wants to do? And I don't know all the individual stories, but what if, what if God's plan in all this is that he'll take Somebody that's coming to church and their spouse wouldn't come to church with them. And there's something interesting happened at this church. And so let me just go and see. Let me just check it out. And it eventually would bring that person into a relationship with Jesus Christ. What if he would take people in our community that are far from God and they'd see something unique, something different, maybe people that you work with, people you come into interaction with, not just because they see it in some news headline, but because they heard it from you, what's going on at your church. And they go, I might, I might give that a shot. That sounds different. Some people maybe that are Christians... They've been burned by the church, been hurt by the church. And they see what's happening here, and they go, that's, that's different. Maybe, maybe I'll check that out. Maybe when they go back to the other building, maybe I'll come check them out while they're still at the school. Maybe. And then God would then save them, redeem them, bring them, bring them into a spot where, where they're in right relationship with him. Some people are Christians, and they're disobedient because they're not part of a church, and so they're living in isolation in that way. But then God would bring them into obedience, bring revival in their hearts. What if... God wants to save people, but not just people, but generations of people through this. I remember one time preaching in this room, a Christmas service, and at the end of the service, I said, if you trusted Christ, raise your hand. I had a guy raise his hand, had his son sitting in his lap. You think, man, you have no idea how much Jesus Christ is going to change your life, but what's going to happen to that boy and to his wife and to their kids as a result of that decision? What if that's what God's plan is with all this, and that's where we're headed? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would draw close to you. I pray that you would bring revival in our hearts. God, I pray that you would do beyond what we could ask or imagine in this moment. Anything that I could dream up of lives being changed, of people being reconciled. God, you could reconcile marriages as a result of this. You could bring reconciliation with groups that don't like each other. God, I pray that you'd use what's happening between these two churches coming together to be a catalyst, like a spark in our city for other churches to come together. I pray, God, that you do something in this time that would be part of our generation that we get to see that would be a revival in our city and the hearts and lives of believers that are going through the motions, that are just attending a church, that are maybe just consumers in some place, that you would ignite something, that they would live on mission for you, that you'd use them in their workplaces, 
in their schools. God, I pray, I mentioned Bart Ehrman, I pray that you'd bring Bart Ehrman to Christ. If you want to use this in some way, I pray you do it. And God, I pray that you would bring unbelieving spouses to Christ. And I pray that you would bring children to Christ. And I pray that you would bring people that have been hurt by the church that know you, that are Christians, but are, are fading away from fellowship with you or are, are not in communion with you in a corporate manner. God, I pray you'd bring them back into the church, whether it's this church or another church. And God, I pray you'd use us in some way in that. We know that in every circumstance you're doing something way bigger than us. God, I pray you'd do something way bigger than what I would pray even right now. I pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, Savior, that today in this moment they would trust your son Jesus Christ. They'd bow your, their heart before you and ask your son Jesus to forgive them of their sins and come into relationship with you. I pray for those that are believers that you'd strengthen their faith and grow them closer to you than they've ever been before. I pray for sin that needs to be dealt with. I pray that lies that Satan's been telling that you'd bring truth into those moments. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.